Hey, uh, we're, uh, we're in our sermon series called Now That's a Great Question, and uh, we're, we're kind of coming towards the end of it. We're getting to the end of, this, uh, in, end of July. We're, we're wrapping up the series, and just as a reminder, last March we collected your questions uh, that you sent to us and questions that you're asking or your friends are asking, and, uh, and we've collected all those, and we've, we've been talking about them. We, we looked at the question, how could a loving God send, send someone to hell? Um, we last week Susan Garlinger talked about uh, uh, what do we do with our our doubts. Um, Brian Candela preached on on you know why does God allow suffering, and uh, we we've looked at a lot of these different topics. And but as we collected the questions, interestingly enough, the the one topic that had the most questions asked about it was uh, had to do with the Bible. Uh, questions like, uh, you know, how do we get our Bible? Who determined what books were in the Bible? Uh, how is the Bible any different than any other religious book? Um, was the message lost? How do we know that we're reading truly is God's word? Uh, of just a variety of different questions. Even some questions about specific texts in the scriptures. Uh, what's it say? What about versions of the Bible? And, uh, and so um, we're going to take these next two weeks to, to talk about the scriptures. Now today, uh, the question I'm going to be dealing with is, is called, Can the Bible be Trusted? Next week, uh, Josh Mann is going to be preaching, and he's going to talk about how the Bible was put together, and, and, and talk about that, that particular topic. So, uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about the scriptures here for, for two weeks, and I'm honing in on, on the, can the Bible be trusted, and I just want to tell you up front, that a large chunk of this message I actually gave three years ago. Uh, early in the year, and uh, just some 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 basic foundation that because there were so many questions asked that I feel like we just need to lay that foundation again, and uh, just so that we're we're clear on that. And I also want you to know that uh, this this talk is going to be a little bit different than the normal talks that I give. I'm going to give you a lot of data, uh, a lot of information. Uh, you may want to throw an elbow during the sermon because someone might be, you know, starting to doze off, and uh, uh, it just gonna be, it's just going to be a little bit different. You're going to have a, a little bit more information, but here's here's the deal: if you stick with it, if you can stick with me through the, the information, I I actually have a point at the end. Uh, I, I'm actually going somewhere with this, um, so so stick with me on it as as we look at uh, this this book that we call God's holy word. Now let me start with a, a, a friendship I, I, I have with a guy at, at the time I was having this particular conversation. Uh, he, he was pretty skeptical of, of Christians. He's pretty skeptical of, of anything that had to do about Jesus or Christianity. And, and we were coaching soccer together and, and he knew I was a pastor so he was firing, he was peppering all kinds of questions my way. And uh, I remember one occasion where I was sitting at lunch. We were sitting there having lunch, and he was asking me questions about, you know, creation and evolution. He was asking me questions about, you know, about Jesus and about what Christians believe. And as he was asking questions, I'm responding to him. I'm responding to him with things like, uh, well, here's what the Bible says. Well, God's word says this. Well, here's what the book of John says. And as I'm responding to his, his questions about faith and about uh, God, and, uh, and I'm responding from the Bible, I, I can tell that he's getting frustrated. Uh, the, the vein in his neck is starting to bulge, okay? His face is starting, he's starting to get a little red, and he's frustrated. And finally, he just interrupts me and says, Steve, 
I don't believe that the Bible is true. So when I ask you a question and you quote the Bible and some Bible verse to me, it's not helping me because I don't believe this is true. Why should I believe this book is true over any other book? And, and how do you know that, that the Bible isn't just some collection of, of people's agenda that they wanted to push on people? How do you know it truly is God's word? And really what he was asking is, can the Bible be trusted? And he didn't believe it could be trusted. And it's a very important question to answer. You know, th- this fall, we're going to start a new Bible study series like we, we do every year. And this fall, we're going to be studying the book of Romans. And there will be over 2,000 people that will be in Bible study groups studying the book of Romans. And every week we come and we open the word and we, we preach from the word. How do we know? We're studying it. We're preaching from, do we know it's true? How do we know that the message hasn't been lost? How do we know that it's not inaccurate? Can the Bible be trusted? Let me just, just start answering this question by reminding us that that Christianity is a historical faith. Christianity is a historical faith. And what I, what I mean by that, let me just define history for you. History is a knowledge of the past based on testimony. History is a knowledge of the past based on testimony. So let me explain this. Raise your hand if you believe that George Washington was our first president. So raise your hand. Okay, a lot of believers, okay, in the room. Uh, um, raise your hand if you were alive when George Washington was our first president. Okay, no one. Some of the kids in the room are going, I think my dad was. He's kind of old. But no one in the room was alive when George Washington was our first president. How do we know he was our first president? We know because of testimony, right? It, People told each other. The, the news spread. Uh, it was written down. You can read history books and, and learn that George Washington was indeed our very first president. You could travel to Washington, D.C. You could go see sites. You could visit his home. You could look at monuments. You could gather the physical evidence and, and, and confirm the fact that George Washington was indeed our very first president. Raise your hand if you were alive on December 7th, 1941. Raise it high and, and, and keep it up, if you could. Someone's holding up her husband's hand up here. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, geezer, get your hand up. <laughs> now, keep your hand up. Now, those of us who were not alive on December 7th, if you want to know about the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed and what it felt like to hear the news you would talk to one of these people who have their hands up. You could talk to them and say, what did it feel like when World War II started? You can put your hands down now. And these people who were alive, they, they are sages. We, do, we don't call them old, okay? They're sages. And, and literally, it's very good to spend time with people who are older. You can learn from them. They've traveled paths that you have not traveled They've seen things that you have not seen. And you can glean wisdom from them. And so if you want to learn about something or an event that you weren't, you weren't at, you could talk to someone. You could hear their testimony 
And in fact, on Pearl Harbor, you can read, right? You can travel to Pearl Harbor, and you can go to, go to sites. You can see the, uh, the Arizona there at that memorial. Christianity is a historical faith, and history is evidence of the past based on testimony. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is because much of the, of the, the evidence for Christianity, was, was much of the testimony for Christianity was written down. It's written testimony. In the 1500s, there was a, uh, an invention called the Gutenberg Press. It was the, it was the very first printing press, and the first book to be printed on the Gutenberg Press was the Bible. It's called the Gutenberg Bible. And up until that time, uh, everything was written down. You didn't have books. It was all handwritten down. And, or it could have been kind of etched into a piece of metal. Sometimes it was written on, uh, on the skin of an animal. Sometimes it was etched into metal. But most literary works, most uh, ancient literature has been written down on a, uh, something called papyrus. Now, I have a, a, a sheet of Egyptian papyrus here just to give you a, a, a look at it. In fact, I want, the ushers have um, samples for you, and this is one of those rare moments when you get to put your hand in the offering plate and pull something out, okay? <laughs> so uh, just mark this date down. Mark this date down that you've got to take something out of the offering plate. If, if you would, I, I, we've ho- hopefully we've saved you enough, and there's enough uh, for, one, uh, for each one of you. What you're, what you're going to be able to hold is a little strip of papyrus. Now, as those are being passed out, let me just explain to you where that comes from. Uh, there is a reed uh, that grows in the shallow waters of the Nile River Delta. And, uh, and papyrus is made by people who walk out and they, they cut the reed just below the water. And uh, if, if this were like a large uh, reed here, once you cut it and you have your section of reed... Then you take it back to where you're working on it. You make a slit in it, and then you roll it out and, and make it flat. So you have these tiny little, little flat pieces of this papyri reed. And then what you do is you take this collection of these ones that have been slit and rolled out, and you lay them over each other in sort of a crisscross fashion, and you rub glue on it. And if you take your little, uh, your little piece of papyrus and you hold it up to the light, you'll see sort of that crisscrossing pattern uh, in the papyrus. Okay, you're seeing it? So each one of those little crisscrossing, that's just a little papyrus reed there. And in, before the Gutenberg press was, uh, was invented, people would, would, they would create these sheets of papyrus and, and varying sizes, and then what they would do is they would, they would write on the paper or the papyrus, all right? And, um, and, but there's sort of a drawback to papyrus. Papyrus deteriorates. Um, it, it has a shelf life of like 80 to 200 years. And that's a pretty big window. But uh, the reason it has a shelf life is because when it's exposed to certain weather, uh, if it's exposed to sunlight, um, the, the sun makes it brittle over time. Uh, the ink on it would fade and, uh, and so the, the papyrus actually begins to break down, and eventually what, what ends up happening is it just turns to dust. But uh, papyrus, the manuscripts that have been written on papyrus, if they're left in a, in a good climate, if they're protected, like in, in clay jars uh, or something like that, papyrus can last a very long time. But up until the invention of the printing press, 
everything was written down on, on some, well, skins or, or etched into metal or most literary works were, were put on papyrus. Now, as we talk about can the Bible be trusted, what we need to understand is that that testimony was written down and much of uh, the scriptures were written on papyrus. And, uh, and when it was written, you have this original or what, uh, what scholars call the autographer or the original autograph. Uh, once that, uh, that autographer is written, and I'm just going to throw this over here and just, just visually demonstrate this for you uh, because you have, you have an original um, that's written down, and it has a shelf life, 80 to 200 years. How many of you have played that, uh, the game called the telephone game? All right, you play the telephone game where you, know, you start over here with your original thought, and you create this, this phrase, and you whisper it to this person, and you whisper it to the next person, and you whisper it to the next person, and if it's a big group, you get all the way down, and, and when you get to the end, the last person who has the message is now supposed to say out loud what the original message was. And if you've ever played this game, the more people that you, you speak this message to, that by the, by the end, when, when someone speaks it out loud, most times it is nothing like the original, Right? So, I mean, for example, let's say the original message started out with bananas are yellow and it's whispered to that person and whispered to that person and you get all the way down here and you're down 20, 30 people and the person shouts out loud, you know, red cars go fast. And the person at the beginning goes, how in the world did we get to red cars? We were starting with yellow, now we're at red, we started with bananas and now we got cars. How did we get there? Well, we got there because someone thought that that's what the person said. They, they didn't hear correctly. And so they passed on an altered message. So when we talk about papyrus and we talk about a shelf life to a material, one of the questions that we have to honestly ask ourselves is this. Is the original message the same as the message that we hold in our hands today? Or was was the telephone game being played? And do we have in our hands right now some altered message version of what was originally written down it's a very important question to ask because you, you do have to you have to be intellectually honest on this because here's what happens let's take the gospel of john the disciple john he's writing down in, in john chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was was with god the word was god and he's writing away and that that gospel is written and the gospel of john is on papyrus in fact that has been copies of it have been discovered and, uh, and John writes his gospel, and time goes by, and uh, let's say that they only had one copy from the original, and they were passing it around, and uh, it was written about 90 A.D., and let's say it, it did really great, and it lasted a full 200 years. So now, you're about 290 A.D., 300 A.D., and you've got a crumbling, faded gospel of John. What do you do? You carefully take it to Kinko's and have them make copies, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's what they would do, except, you know, obviously they didn't have Kinko's. There were scribes, and their job was, was to take things that were written on papyrus, and they would copy them, and they would create a second generation, a copy of the original. And the scribal work was very detailed. What they would do is they would take the original... And they would write it down. And when they got done with one page, they would count the words on the page they copied. And they'd make a notation of how many words. 
Then they would count the letters and write. So if you've ever seen a picture of a, a manuscript that's been discovered, you'll see numbers in the corners. And that's the scribes making sure that not one letter is left out or added, making sure not one word is left out or added. And that's true of, of multiple literary works, not just the Bible. So you've got this second generation that's created around 300 A.D. And let's say they make 100 copies, and those last 200 years, so now you're at 500 A.D., you're still 1,000 years from the printing press, and those are starting to crumble, and you make more copies of that, and you keep going along, and now you've got you know, hundreds and thousands of copies of the original, but you are so far from when John first sat down in 90 A.D. And so you have to ask yourself the question, is what's written on this fourth or fifth generation matching up with the original? And how would you know that? Well, there is a way to know that. Secular scholars have a, a, a process that they, they, it's called a bibliographical test. And one of the tests that they go through is um, they, uh, well, it, it makes sense. Because manuscripts have been discovered of, of multiple literary works, and I'll talk about a few of those. And what they do is they date them. Um, so let, let's say an original document was written on 0 AD, or, you know, 0 AD BC, and, and 1,000 years ago, they find a manuscript, and they date it to 1,000 AD. Well, you are 1,000 years between the closest dated manuscript and the original, and so you have a 1,000-year gap. What secular scholars will teach you and tell you is that if you can find a manuscript that's dated as close as possible to the original, then you have discovered something that has less chance of error, less chance of the message being, being altered. Are you with me? Is that, is that, am I making sense? Okay. So the, the, the wider the gap, the more chance of error, the more narrow the gap, the more chance that you have what was originally written down. So stick with me here, because I'm going to just give you some examples. Julius Caesar fought in the, in the, the Gallic Wars. In 55 B.C., Caesar uh, wrote down his account of, of fighting those Gallic Wars. And, uh, and those manuscripts, when you study Julius Caesar and you study the Gallic Wars, uh, those manuscripts that have been fined that talk about Julius Caesar, uh, they have been dated by secular scholars, and secular scholars uh, put them about 950 A.D., which means there's a 1,000-year gap between when the original was written and when Caesar's, these copies uh, have been discovered. Many of you studied Plato in, in university and in, in college, and uh, Plato's dialogues, you've read them, you've, re- you've, you've read the Sophists, you've, read, you've studied the Republic, You've, you've heard about the Apology of Socrates. And uh, there have been manuscripts that have been discovered of, of Plato's uh, dialogues. Um, and those manuscripts have been dated by secular scholars to be about 1,200 years uh, removed from the original. And, uh, and then there's another guy that you've probably studied in college or university, and his name is Aristotle. Aristotle wrote the Poetics. And much of Aristotelian thought comes from these manuscripts that have been found. And, uh, and secular scholars date uh, Aristotle's poetics, these manuscripts that have been discovered in archaeological digs, to be 1,400 years from the original. Now, this gap is not abnormal. 
So um, it, it's not abnormal to, to find a literary work, to find manuscripts that have this big of a gap between them. So um, th- th- that's not a huge shock. But the reason I put these out here is because I want you to see that some of these things you learned in school, if you play the telephone game, you've got 1,000 to 1,400 years where if someone didn't copy it down correctly, that message could be changed. So where does the Bible stack up? Because remember, Christianity is a historical faith. And much of the evidence from our past comes from written testimony when it comes to Christianity. Let's just talk about the New Testament. Secular scholars, not, not Christian scholars, secular scholars have looked at manuscripts that have been discovered, and secular scholars date manuscripts in the New Testament to within 30 years of when it was originally written. 30 years. In fact, recently, some fragments of, of manuscripts the book of Matthew have been discovered, and they date them within 15 years of the original. Here's why this is so important to know. Because if someone writes down and copies this manuscript, the people who are seeing the copies, they're still alive. And if you don't write it down right, or you change the message, they're going to say, wait, 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 it wasn't the feeding of the 10,000. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And they could, they could, they could, Make the, the, the changes and make sure that's accurate. So the telephone game can't come into play because it's so close to the original. And this is really important to understand. Now, trust me, I am going somewhere with this, but I just, I just want you to understand that when you come to the, to the New Testament, uh, the message, there's such, there's such a short gap there And when you compare it to other trusted literary works, the Bible stacks up really, really well. But is there a way, because even though you have that gap, is there a way to know that it still has the original message? And I could suggest to you that, yes, you can know. And here's how you can know. You can actually recreate what the original message said. And here's how you do it. For example... Let's say that you discover 10 copies of the Gospel of John. You discover 10 copies of the Gospel of John, and you want to read John 3.16 in each one of those original, uh, those, those manuscripts, those copies. So you read John 3.16, and two of those copies say, God so liked the world. Three of those copies say, God thought highly of the world. And five copies say, God so loved the world. Well, what did the original say? Did the original say God so loved, God thought highly, or God liked the world? Well, if you say it's God so loved the world, honestly what you have to say is that you're, you're 50% sure that's what the original stated. Because five out of ten have that in it. But what if you have a thousand copies of the Gospel of John? Let's run through that same exercise. If you have a thousand copies of, the, uh, of John 3.16, and two of them say, God so liked the world, and three of them say, God thought highly of the world, and 995 say, God so loved the world, what do you think the original said? God so loved the world, right? What you are doing is that the more manuscripts that are discovered, the more papyrus sheets that somehow survive over time, 
the more you have, the better chance you can, the better chance you have of recreating what the original message was just by comparing each manuscript to each other. Still with me? All right. So let's look at some of the manuscripts and, and let's find out how many have been discovered. Let's start with Plato's dialogues. Uh, as as of, of 2011, there are seven copies that have been discovered of Plato's dialogues. There's seven copies. Everything you know about Plato and his tetralogies, are, they come from uh, seven copies. Uh, the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. There are ten copies of, of Julius Caesar's writings. Everything you know about those wars, about the history of Julius Caesar, comes from ten copies. Uh, Tacitus was a Roman historian, uh, and he, he wrote Roman history, and it's called the Annals, and there's 20 copies of the writings uh, of, of Tacitus. Aristotle's Poetics, uh, 49 uh, complete manuscript copies that have been discovered. And by the way, when you compare those manuscripts with each other, they do stack up pretty well. Um, they're, they're fairly close. And just so you know, there's more, you can get more examples of other literary works. This isn't my research. You can read books like uh, Evidence for Christianity by Josh McDowell. Uh, There's other books out there that will will break this out for you and show it to you. This isn't my work. I'm just just, um, reading some other books and sharing with you what's been discovered. But what about the New Testament? How does the New Testament stack up? Is it 7, 10, 20? Actually, there's 24,633 manuscripts that have been discovered. 24,633. Now, you need to get this. Because if there is a question about a verse in the Bible, and uh, you want to know if it's accurate, all you have to do is go to the, the hundreds of, and, and thousands of copies of that particular book, and you compare them to each other, and what you can do is you can recreate the original to make sure that the telephone game hasn't played in and mixed the message. So not only is there a short time gap, there are so many, it's overwhelming how much manuscript evidence there is just for the New Testament that you can, in fact, recreate the original. Many of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered, there was a complete book of Isaiah. And guess what? It matches up. Written uh, before the time of Christ. Copied by a scribe from the Old Testament. Matches up to the, the book of Isaiah that's, that's in, in your hands, in your Bible. And with, even with a, a short time gap and massive amounts of evidence of manuscripts where you can recreate the original, one thing we need to know is that the books of our Bible were written... Uh, many of the books of our Bible were written by eyewitnesses. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. It's on page 1207. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find uh, that on page 1207 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I want to read to you uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I want you just to listen to what John the disciple, who became the apostle, what he's, what he's trying to communicate in his role as an eyewitness. 1 John chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Here's what John is saying. We saw Lazarus come out of that tomb. We saw Jesus feed the 5,000. We touched Jesus after he was laid in the tomb. We We touched his resurrected body. We were with him. We touched his wounds. We heard him speak. We heard him tell the parable of the sower. We heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount. What I'm writing to you is what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our very own hands. John is an eyewitness. Go one page backwards to Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one, page twelve hundred and four in your pew Bible. Would you stand with me as I read God's holy word? Now again, listen to Peter as he is going to talk about Scripture and his role. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And Peter is referring to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Pick it up in verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now keep going back in your Bible. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're going there, let me remind you what Peter just said. Peter just said, we we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. This wasn't some, you know, imagination of ours. And and we were carried along by the Spirit. And and we spoke these things, not because we thought them, but because they, they were God's thoughts and by the inspiration of the Spirit. We wrote them down as eyewitnesses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Church, this is God's holy word. And you may be seated. Look, here's the deal. Let's go back to the original question. Can the Bible be trusted? We're just laying a foundation here. Can the Bible be trusted? Look, when you compare it to other literary works, it, it is so impressive. The, the time gap is so narrow. There's a multitude of manuscripts. They're written by eyewitnesses who, who are telling firsthand experiences of their encounter with Christ and how they, how they heard from the Spirit. It's overwhelming. And when you hold your Bible, I, I hope, my prayer is that you realize the, the treasure, the weight of the treasure that you have in your hands, that God has, has gone to great lengths to preserve for you. Think about it. For thousands of years, the, the treasure that you have in your hands has been preserved for you so that you could read it, so that you could open it up and you could have, you could have by, the, by the Spirit the heart of the Father revealed to you so that you would know. So that you would know how to be right with God, so that you would know that when you feel stuck and depressed, where to turn. So that you would know that when you're worried and you're anxious and you're stressed out, that you have a God who's, who's ready to hear you and you have a Spirit of God who is interceding on your behalf. You have a Christ who is your mediator. So, so, so don't you think we should read it? Don't you think we should read the word that's been written and then printed? And I, and I know many of us, when we, you know, we begin a new year, we start Bible reading programs. I've done it. And you read Genesis and Exodus and you get to the book of Leviticus and, 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 and the book of Leviticus is strewn with the corpses of those of us who started the Bible reading program at the beginning of the year. You're like, ah, oh, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> but that book's been preserved for us for a reason, as well as many other books of the scriptures. For you, and don't detach the voice from the printed word. So we should read it. We should meditate. We should memorize. We should learn the language of Scripture and feast on this treasure that has been preserved for you and for me.